Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Sunday, May 16th, 2021. I was looking at this day in Disney, looking for, for story ideas, Drew, and today's kind of a sad day in Disney and animation history. It's 31 years ago today we lost Jim Henson to bacterial pneumonia. But then a year to the day is when the Disney MGM version of Muppet Vision 3D opened. Yeah. And you know what, Jim? I was going to tell you this, that the Muppets at Walt Disney World, some kind soul has uploaded it to YouTube. It always gets taken down. And it was it aired on the Magical World of Disney 10 days before he died. That's right. So, mm. Is it the Brian... James Jones bio, which, by the way, again, I love. Is that the one that has the story about they're in the middle of production and they're sort of killing time at Disney MGM and somebody opens a, a Vanity Fair and there's a quiz in it? And it's one of those, how long will you live quizzes? And I guess Jim was looking at his, oh, I'm going to live forever. This is great. So it's like, uh, oh, just makes me sad. Yes. Other Muppet-related news and to animation have you been following at all the Muppet Baby show for Disney Junior? I haven't, Jim. I It might shock you that that is where I set the bar. Yeah. <laughs> I bring this up because just recently they've introduced a new character to the cast, and it's Jill, who you may remember was one of the advertising executives that Kermit met in Muppets Take Manhattan from 84. I think there was Jill and Gil and Bill. <laughs> But it's, you know, just the idea that they looked at the show, it's like, we need more females. And so they dug through the pile and found Jill being a soon-to-be advertising executive. Other Muppet-related news, you, you must have seen the thing about the Muppet Haunted Mansion. Yes, I've heard it's, I he have heard, I've heard the script is <laughs> hilarious, Jim, so I'm really excited. One quick correction, when Len and I talked about this, I, I mentioned that they were supposed to be sh shooting this summer, and as it turns out, they actually took advantage of the fact that the park was closed to shoot some on-location stuff in April. But I guess in kind of the, the Muppet tradition of you go after your celebrities and see who you can get, I guess a number of the cameos haven't been shot yet. That's what will get shot later this summer as Disney lines up people. And beyond that, for the creatives that listen to the show, we, we had this notice just this past week about the Henson Company is actually holding auditions coming up. It's some sort of a three-week-long inclusive workshop in Los Angeles. Its mission is to cultivate and nurture multicultural talent and diverse perspectives. I think I could do it, Jim. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of weird voices. <laughs> I remember talking with Dave Golds, who's done Gonzo forever. And this was right after Dave had had shoulder surgery think about it, how much of his adult life he spent with one arm up in the air doing gonzo and having done this for decades he'd actually blown out his shoulder and, and required reconstructive surgery wow so it's more than the funny voices and henson is doing a lot of animation these days with things like their henson performance capture system so which began with uh with waldo right it did. It did. And again, Muppet Vision 3D. So that concludes the Muppet portion, uh, news portion of today's show. And speaking of news, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, 
For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So, a lot of Netflix-related stuff. Having enjoyed Mitchell's versus the Machines, I, I'm not really surprised by this stat. But did you see where it, you know that animated feature had actually been the number one film on Netflix for I want to say like 17 days in a row? Oh wow! No, I didn't see that, but I, yeah, I'm, that makes me very happy. I just got the Art of book in the mail, which I'm very excited to go go through. That hit store shelves on Tuesday, May 18th. Yes. But Mitchell's Vista the Machine got bumped off uh, just this past Friday, evidently, by the new Amy Adams film, The, the Woman in the Window. And you had mentioned that we're just a couple of weeks out now from a new animated feature from Netflix, Wish Dragon? Yeah, they, they released a trailer this week. It's coming out on June 11th. I thought it looked very cute. The animation looks really great. And um, yeah, it looks mm-hmm. like a good sort of companion piece to Over the Moon from last year. I don't know. What, what did you think about it? It has a very Aladdin vibe, yeah. which I think that was a deliberate choice by whoever was cutting the end of the trailer. Let's get that energy. Let's get that feel. I'm always fascinated by, okay, this is what the trailer looks like, and this is what the finished film was. But I love the design. I love the voice work. The conceit of this is a guy reuniting with his best friend from childhood who just happens to be a girl, that looked fun too. Again, that's not going to be released on Netflix till June 11th. So we won't have to wait long, Jim, to see about that cute dragon. There we go. There we go. Do we know if, the, if there's going to be a merch program at all with this? Or As far as I know, n- no. Yeah, I know. I, he's cute as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was nothing for Mitchell's mm-hmm. versus the Machines. There were a few over-the-moon toys, which I almost bought a couple of times mm-hmm. just because I thought how, how weird it was that they, they did it. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's the, one, that's the one thing about Netflix that isn't as great mm-hmm. is that they don't have that consumer products element to it. But at the same time, so many of the animated features right now are dealing with the fact that their original retail plans got blown out of the water. I, I bring this up because I was in Target just a couple of days ago in the toy aisle, and here were the Minions Rise of Gru toys. Mm-hmm. There was at least two new variations on the fart gun. In fact, I, I was inches away from buying the Tiny Toot. But Minions Rise of Gru has now been pushed off to 2022, right? Yeah. I was sitting there holding the set for Gru's Secret Lair, and it's like, do I really want this film blown for me, you know, 14 months in advance? And it's like, put it back on the shelf. But I look at something like the title character of Wish Dragon, and it's like, okay, that should be a plush. And given what just happened with Mitchell's versus the Machine, you know, number one on Netflix for 17 days... You gotta wonder if someone after the fact will circle back on on doing action figures or something like that. We need some kind of mochi plush, Jim. I think we both need that in our lives. Just a little wall-eyed <laughs> dog or a loaf of bread. There yeah. we go. I was about a dog playing loaf of bread. So, <laughs> speaking of movies, also coming for streaming services. What do you make of this news coming from HBO Max that we're now going to get an Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie? Adventure Brothers and a Metalopolis movie. I think that when they announced the Adventure Brothers was ending, they did kind of tip their hat to say, we're looking at other ways of keeping it going. I mean, it makes sense to me. I don't really know what the like pipeline is for something like that. Is it just like mm-hmm. an oversized episode or is it a full-fledged theatrical production? 
but I mean, I'm I've never really gotten into Metalocalypse, but I think Aqua Teen Hunger Force mm. is a lot of fun, and obviously, I'm a huge, it huge, is. it is Venture Brothers. Yeah, I think you're right. The Venture Brothers, you know, sort of left us in a position where okay, you know, that you could wrap the story up, or in theory, set up a, a series of movies to follow. Aqua Teen Hunger Force, though. Isn't the whole gimmick of that show the fact that it's set in that house and they occasionally go next door and sneak into the guy's pool? <laughs> well, do you remember there was another there was another Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie, Jim, in two thousand seven. Do you not remember Aqua Teen Hunger Force colon movie film for theaters? Oh no, that got <laughs> by me. No, yeah. now I gotta. Okay, well now I have homework. Okay. Yes. How did that do? Did that actually bump up? Yeah, the world, it made money. It, yeah, it cost like a half a million dollars to make, and it made you know six million dollars. And I think it was a big hit on video, where stoned teenagers can watch it. <laughs> but apparently, that there has okay. been a, a script for a sequel since 2010. So I'm assuming this is the sort of culmination of that. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what they come up with. I think it's a good it's a good move to it to get people interested in HBO Max. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, uh, we were just talking about Disney Junior with Muppet Babies, and uh, again a CG show, and so not really a surprise to see we've got yet another CG show for kids headed our way. So the name is Alice's Wonderland Bakery. Right. <laughs> I guess she is serving up treats as a child. I mean, she looks very, she looks younger than she looks in the show, but uh, I mean, in the movie, but it looks, I think it looks cute. I, what did you think? Reading off of the press release here, this is not actually the Alice, the Disney Alice. This is her great, great granddaughter. I guess they're deliberately putting this at a distance that she's starting up this bakery in Wonderland. But she has friends who are reminiscent of the classic Lewis Carroll characters. There's uh, Fergie, a white rabbit. There's Hattie, her madcap friend. And Rosa, the princess of hearts. And it's not really going to surprise you, given that this is coming from the producer of Doc McStuffins and executive producer of Eleanor Avalor, and likewise the, the guy who wrote all the music for Sophia the First. But... It's a, an age-appropriate show that celebrates the culture and creativity of food, highlights self-expression, and imparts age-appropriate social and emotional lessons about friendship, collaboration, and community in two 11-minute long segments per show. I can see the Epcot uh, food booth now, Jim. <laughs> I can see it. I would not be surprised. But yeah, the, what is this, 2022? Is is that when this is supposed yeah. to drop? Oh, but we did get some Disney Channel news that I, I forgot to even tell you because it happened just yesterday. But did you see that the Amphibia finale will be coming soon? It'll be next Saturday at 8 p.m.? Okay, and but that's season two finale, right? Yeah, the season two finale at uh, True Colors, okay. which had accidentally been leaked online after being pulled from mm -hmm. the broadcast schedule so it's been mm -hmm. a mess i'm sure but we're finally gonna get to see it so we should both watch it next weekend okay. and we'll, we'll have something to talk about okay you know again i've been behaving myself not going over to youtube and, and trying to see this early so okay i'll be good I'll, i can wait you know another eight days 
Well, you know, the the Luca books came out, Jim. Have you have you read everything and you can tell me about the ending of uh, the upcoming Pixar? No, no. Okay, no. good. That was why I was in the toy aisle. I was actually looking for the Luca stuff. And mind you, Target shows the books, but they hadn't shown up in the physical store yet. I came across one lonely onward action figure, the younger brother. What was his name? Uh, Ian. Ian, Ian, and I came within inches of buying him. I just felt bad. He was hanging there in his hook, and it's just sort of like, oh. Well, have you seen how they've sort of they've sort of recontextualized all the Pixar characters in this kind of uber Pixar line that Mattel has put out? So it, it'll just have a Pixar logo, and then it'll be a character from Onward. It'll be a character from Toy Story, et cetera, et cetera. But no, yeah, it's kind oh. of interesting. Okay. And they have some weird. Rocket Gibraltar. Do you remember him from the first Toy Story? Mm-hmm. The kind of strongman character is in there, and yeah, it's yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. On the other hand, the spirit emerged. The spirit unchained. What? what oh is yeah. The, the catchphrase of that Untamed. Film? I think. Yeah. Boy, they're ready for every little girl in the world to discover that film. And having seen the trailer, the hooks are there. Whoever put that trailer together definitely deserves a raise even as an adult it's like oh the poor horsey so (laughs) let's just finish our roundup here with what's going on in the netflix world so we've got an ultraman movie from the folks who brought us kobo (laughs) and gravity falls yeah how how about that i can't wait shannon tindall is directing and it sounds really great it's the first fully animated ilm movie by ilm since strange magic Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting. People on Twitter were asking me, like, oh, so a Disney-owned company is going to do animation mm-hmm. for Netflix. And it's like, yep, I guess they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're a, a house. Yeah. They, they're they a vendor, you know, so why not? But it looks... Mm-hmm. That, that teaser image is so cool, I thought. But I'm excited. I'm old enough to, to remember when they, they initially syndicated Ultraman in the States. It aired, I want to say, on Sunday mornings. Even then, as a kid, it's like, wow, they had a dollar fifty. A lot of cardboard box buildings getting knocked over by guys in suits who they could barely hide the zippers. So it's 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 interesting to have this much talent working on trying to change something that was that cheesy into really for real entertainment. I actually can't wait for this. And and speaking of which, let's talk about what Kevin Smith has been working on while he was self-isolating during COVID, the the Masters of the Universe animated series, the, the reboot. Yeah, it's got a great cast. I don't, I don't think I can talk about it yet. I, I've seen some of the episodes, but I can't talk about it yet. But uh, mm-hmm. they released some new images, and, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody still looks roided out, that's for sure. Uh, I don't know. If, <laughs> did you watch the original? It kind of, like, went past me as a kid, so... This will be my sort of introduction to Masters of the Universe. I was not the right demographic for this, but I have sort of a new appreciation for Masters of the Universe on the back of the the toys that made us. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, they have a wonderful installment about the the history of the toy line and the animated series. And it was one of these things where nothing happens in a vacuum and they were responding to everything else that was out there in the marketplace. So it's it's interesting to see it being reinvented again. Can you talk about this other project that's coming from the director of, of Parasite? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm very excited about this. I've always been a big Bong Joon-ho fan, but 
Yeah, he's mm-hmm. making what he describes as a deep sea adventure film. It seemed like it was mm-hmm. about some kind of organism that has a herniated back or something. Did you read that? I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds so insane and funny, but he's working with one of the vendors that he worked with, I believe, on The Host and Oakjaw. So it's going to be him reteaming with mm-hmm. a visual effects company to do this crazy animated film, which I think is going to be probably hilarious and awesome because he only makes amazing movies. So I, I cannot wait to see what an animated Bong Joon-ho movie looks like. Have you seen Have you seen The Host and Okja, Jim? I definitely seen Parasite, which I just remember seeing Parasite and it's like, okay, this is a very different monster comes out of the water movie mm-hmm. as opposed to the classic Godzillas and Half the the reason I loved these things as a child was the cheesiness of them and the fact that, you know, he was a guy who found a new way to do this. In fact, do you remember the early scenes in Parasite where you're like 100 or 300 feet away actually from the monster and it's just people spending the day in the park and suddenly something in the distance is happening and it's like, what the hell is that? Right. The fact that it was staged the way it was and the action scenes were done the way it was just made it that much more compelling. And, and That's the, the host, that Jim. Still... You're talking about the... Ho- Hold on. You're talking about the host. Parasite was the Oscar-winning family uh, thriller from last year. They're, they're see, very similarly see, named. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Uh, my apologies, folks. Uh, honestly, they, particularly given the storyline of, of the host, it should have been called Parasite. Yeah, but... it's okay. I understood you, Jim. I, I speak Jim, so I understood exactly what, what you were saying. That's the Jim to Garble dictionary that we, we <laughs> you know, we needed. And, and speaking of garbling, wait to hear this setup for the feature, folks. When Drew and I get back, we're going to take a look at the Roger Rabbit films that we didn't get. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The folks at Van Eaton Galleries are doing another one of their amazing auctions. In fact, I'm holding the catalog here right now for the Rediscovering Disneyland, an exhibition and auction, which is going to be held May 22nd through the 23rd. They send out these wonderful catalogs that are like phone books. And this one in particular is a must-get if you're a Disney fan, because if you turn to page 352... We have a set of Baby Herman Ride concept drawings. These supposedly date from Disney MGM from 1990. Likewise, we have a set of 34 concept drawings for a Benny the Cab Ride. And also a set of drawings for a Toontown Express. That was going to be the simulator ride, wasn't it? The one that had the kind of wraparound screens. There we go, yeah. And the other one I particularly want to direct people's attention to, it's item 1150. It is the complete set of storyboards for the Baby Herman attraction. And by the way, if you go to the Van Eaton Gallery's website, you can actually take a look at this artwork. And 
it's kind of amazing to get a look at it. Remember, this was part of the Sunset Boulevard project, right? Yes. I love that it's it, that it's from Disneyland and it's all Disney MGM stuff. But yeah. The Baby Herman ride was definitely a Disney MGM exclusive. On the other hand, the Benny the Cab ride, you're right. That was built as part of Mickey's Toontown, uh, which opened in January of 93. Mm-hmm. And then the attraction of the Benny the Cab ride. What did they call it out there? Roger Rabbit's Cartoon Spin? Yes. Because you're, you're riding in Benny the Cab. Yeah. Did you see that there was some... There was something on Twitter the other day that was really interesting about how that ride was supposed to be two stories and that it was actually supposed to go through yes. the and, and you can see where it was supposed to go. I mean, the, the building is there for it, but apparently they couldn't get the ride vehicle up the hill <laughs> to go outside or something. If, if you want to talk about that, Jim, please feel free. This would have been 1989, 1990. And this was during one of those times where periodically the Walt Disney Company makes decisions that they come to regret. And and in this case, it was a situation where, like, we're looking at line items about how much money Imagineering is spending. And their in-house photography department is just charging an exorbitant amount to create the slides that are then shown at presentations for executives So what they decide to do is they begin to farm out the developing of their photography and the creation of these slides for these presentations to an outside company. And I have a friend who works in the darkroom at this company that gets hired to do the slides for for Imagineering. And he knows I'm somebody who's heavily into Disney history and, you know, I write about the company and he's like, hey, you know, when they shoot the models... They only ask for the good shots, and so we tend to throw a lot of developed film off to the side. And how would you feel if I, just as we're doing, recreating the slides, I throw the ones we're not using in an envelope, and then I send them to you? And it's like, yes or no, sir, three banks full, sir. (laughs) So this is how I end up with the slides for the early version of what was then called Mickey Land, which, I, and again, I can tell you the story you just shared about the, the cabs going outside and rolling along the rooftops of Toontown. It's true because I have the concept art. I have these slides. But also, you got to remember, from that iteration of the land, this was also, for example, when Muppet Vision 3D was going to be located in Toontown. In fact, I want to say the artwork for that version of the attraction was actually done by Don Carson. This is really more about what happened with Roger Rabbit after the film opened in June of 88. And it was a ridiculously complicated production, very fraught. I think we've talked about in the show that, that famous story that Don Hahn tells about, you know, what he what He flew over from London because they were behind on the animation and and met with, with Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney's New York Fifth Avenue office. And Jeffrey basically read him the riot act. You know, we have deals with McDonald's and Diet Coke. And this film will open in theaters in June of 1988, come hell or high water. You know, you can't delay it. So it hits. I mean, it, it's this monster, monster hit film. Everyone is thrilled with the work that that Richard Williams has done. Likewise, Robert Zemeckis has done a wonderful job with the live action side of it and, you know, gotten killer performances out of Bob Hoskins and Christopher Lloyd. 
And you were telling me that almost instantly after the film's in theaters, J.J. Abrams pitches a sequel? Or Yeah, I think he tells the story about how he pitched a sequel to, to Spielberg in 88. So that must have been either right before mm-hmm. or right after the movie opened. I mean, clearly they were starting to get the the indication that this thing was going to be a huge hit. Um, and, you know, there's that story about how J.J. as a child helped Spielberg um, splice together some like Super 8 films. And that was sort of mm-hmm. when they were reintro- they reintroduced themselves to each other, which I thought was great. But uh, mm-hmm. it's a fascinating story. I mean, and just so, the, uh, I guess, uh, relationships and the complicated rights that that the character has. Um, I mean, you can you can speak to that, I'm sure. The original Gary Wolf book comes out in, in 81, and Disney snags the rights before the, the, the book is... Uh, St. Martin's actually puts the book out in sewers. But then in 81, 83, I mean, you can go online on YouTube and catch the studio showcase that Disney did where they actually talk, you know, they show a little bit of the test that they were doing for Roger Rabbit. It became apparent that the Disney company of that period couldn't make this movie. It was too ambitious. The only way it really worked for the version, you know, eventually was done was set in 1947's Hollywood. Was, was the notion of, you know, the whole idea of if tunes are real, if tunes exist in the real world, when we go out into Hollywood of 1947, we can't just see Disney characters. We have to see Looney Tune characters. We have to see Popeye and, and other characters. And Disney, out of the eight studios that were in the business at that point, they were eighth. They were dead last. Ron Miller steps down as the head of the Walt Disney Company. It's September 7th of, of 1984. And Michael Eisner isn't installed as the new head till the 24th of that month. And so there's this two-week-long period or thereabouts where it's like, who are we going to get? Who are we considering for the job? And to help Michael get the job, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas actually call the members of the Disney board individually. They talk about, well, look, you know, we work with Michael Eisner. In fact, that there wouldn't be a Raiders of the Lost Ark if there wasn't a Michael Eisner. He was the guy who was brave enough to do that. He was the guy to make the deal with us over at Paramount. And a not very subtle message they were trying to get across to the Disney board was that, if you install Michael Eisner as the new head of the Walt Disney Company, George and, and Stephen will then come work for Disney. This is also the Disney Company that remembers that they let Steven Spielberg slip through their hands twice in the late 70s. It's fall of 79 and that whole Raiders deal. Disney had been approached by Lucas and Spielberg about, you know, we're looking for a place to make Raiders. And in the end, it was just, it was too rich for Disney's blood at that point that Spielberg and Lucas each wanted 25% of the box office or something like that effect. Yeah, I mean, people made fun of, of Eisner for the deal that he mm-hmm. made for Raiders. So I, I, I can understand mm-hmm. not everyone wanting to, to go down that particular route, but still. No, but it, it paid off beautifully for Paramount. In fact, at that time, Eisner cuts a deal with Lucas and Spielberg for Raiders plus four sequels. In fact, that's the funniest part is that the Raiders 5 that you know, will finally supposedly get in theaters next July is the final film of that contract. 42 years later, and we, we find, they finally you know, finished out the contract. But anyway, the, the other one, it's December of, of 79, and 1941 comes out. 
and it gets horrible reviews in the States. It doesn't do particularly good business domestically. It, it does great business overseas because it makes Americans look like idiots. And that was very appealing to audiences internationally. But because I guess it was originally budgeted for $20 million and, well, Spielberg to this day insists that it only cost $26.5 million to make. Whereas if you talk with the folks at Columbia or Universal who actually split the cost of production between the two of them, it's either 35 or $40 million. So Spielberg was in movie jail for a couple of months. Nobody in town really wanted to do business with him. And like he was feeling sorry for himself and he wanted, well, all right, I don't want to go work for Universal or Warners or Columbia anymore. I'll show them. And he approaches Disney. And he basically says, you know, I've loved the films that Walt made. You know, and in fact, I mean, if you watch 1941, I have a big part that, that pays tribute to Dumbo. And, you know, if you're, you remember in Close Encounters, we use When You Wish Upon a Star. You know, like, Disney's in my blood. And it's like, I'm looking for a place to call home. I want to set up a production company at Disney. And he had brought a script with him that he was like, and this is the first film I want to make at Disney, and it's called Night Skies, written by John Sayles, and it's it's kind of a follow-up to Close Encounters. It's a, it's a family in a remote cabin out in the desert that finds itself being attacked by this group of aliens. Disney looks at it and goes, ooh, too dark, too scary. So they pass. They pass on, on Spielberg having his production office at Disney. During the same period, Spielberg is still under contract to Columbia. And so he feels, all right, well, at least I have to take it there to them. And they take a look at it. They actually think it's not scary enough. So they turn it down. Spielberg decides to take the project in a different direction. He hires Melissa Matheson to rewrite the script. He then presents this new kind of family-friendly version to Columbia at this point, they're like, we, we will never make this movie. This is like a, a wimpy piece of crap that Disney would make. This is like the cat from outer space, too. And at this point, Spielberg reaches out to Universal, to his friend Sid Scheinberg, and it's like, look, can you help me get this away from Columbia? And Scheinberg, for a million dollars, gets the rights for this movie. Plus, he agrees to give Columbia 5% of whatever this new version of Night Skies makes if it ever gets released to theaters. This movie gets a different title after the rewrite by Melissa. It's E.T. and Me, or eventually it becomes known as E.T. the Extraterrestrial and comes out June of 82 and makes more money than God. The word gets out in town that Disney had the rights to E.T., and they let it go. And you know, not only that, but Spielberg was looking to, to set up his production company at, at Disney, and they bobbled the deal. And poor Ron Miller was like, no, 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 no. That's not the script we were shown. We had the scary movie with the aliens attacking the cabin. We didn't have the sweet kid and the Drew Barrymore. And this is a lot of the reason why Ron Miller loses his job at Disney. And Eisner gets put in, and that's on the back of Spielberg and Lucas campaigning for Disney. Now, Eisner is looking over all of the projects that Disney has in the works, and he immediately identifies Roger Rabbit as the sort of thing that could help put Disney back on the map. It's the sort of film that they used to do with live action and animation, like Mary Poppins, Bad Dobbs and Broomstick, Pete's Dragon, uh, Song of the South. 
But at the same time, it, it's it's got a, a sharper feel that could be of the movies of today. So he feels like, well, we can't do this on our own. So they decide to partner with Spielberg. Spielberg becomes the executive producer of the project. He's the one who taps Robert Zemeckis to direct. The, the consensus with Spielberg and Zemeckis was that Disney wasn't good enough to do yeah. the animation in this film. Yeah. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I still marvel at the story where they supposedly, they went to London, they met with Don Bluth and was talking with him about, well, could you handle the animation for this? And they, they went back to Disney after Don had technically said, okay, yeah, I, I could do this. And Disney was, oh, hell no. We will not work with Don Bluth. You won't make this movie with Don Bluth. And so that's Richard Williams and his team in London were, were the default, were the fallback. With some with some notable Disney animators there. Um, I think An- Andreas was there and a couple of other people. An amazing team of people. It's a hard film to deliver. And the fact that Bear Studios stepped in at, at virtually the last moment when they realized that we're just not going to be able to make our June deadline. And they did the Toontown sequence, but you know they they make it over the the finish line, and it, it it's a hit film, and suddenly Disney has a new hit character, and Roger Rabbit merchandise is flying out the door. But the, the thinking now is on the strength of the faux short that opens the film. Disney forms this two tiered approach that they're going to do a s- series of new theatrical shorts starring Roger Rabbit, and the idea is that these will be put out in theaters one a year until the sequel is ready, right? So to sort of keep the character front of mind. It was pretty amazing that the first one was only a year after the movie came out, too. This is true. This is true. That one is tummy trouble, right? That arrives in theaters in June of 89, out ahead of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was, you know, the surprise hit of that summer. That then got both Disney and Spielberg's attention. Which we'll get to in a moment, but getting back to J.J.'s pitch for the, the sequel, were there any details of, of what he wanted to do with the film? No, or? Okay. no there weren't. I, yeah, I don't know anything about what he his pitch was, but I will have some information about another pitch okay. later. All right. Well, evidently what Disney decided to do after the original Roger Rabbit hits in uh, 88 is that they're going to do a prequel for the next film in the series. In fact, anytime Disney had a hit, especially under Michael Eisner's regime, immediately the sequels were lined up. In fact, the week after Honey, I Shrunk the Kids opened in theaters, Disney went out and copyrighted Honey, I Sent the Kids to the Moon, Honey, I, I Switched Brains with the Dog, Honey, I, I... There was one about Mars, Honey, We Landed on Mars or something. Yeah, I mean, just, but there were literally like 10 titles, the effect of, okay, these are ours. I don't know if we're going to make them, but these are ours. Just a, a few weeks before Tummy Trouble and Honey, I Shrank opens in theaters, Nate uh, Maudlin delivers the script to Roger Rabbit Toon Platoon. It's set in 1941 Hollywood, in fact, it's 18-year-old Roger journeys to Hollywood because he's searching for his mother. And while he's there, World War II is declared and, and he and a bunch of other cartoon characters get drafted and get put in this unit of tunes who the Americans then send into battle. I've got a copy of the modeling script here at the house and 
there's this great moment where you have the human general and his aide looking out on the battlefield as the truants have, have marched into service and how are they doing, soldier? And, and well, sir, they seem to be frolicking. Then it's this sort of gag-filled sequence where it's like Yosemite Sam is running out into the battlefield doing sort of tootinous, shootinous, and they've got Daffy out there doing these woo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo, and the Tasmanian devil. A bomb falls out of the sky, and at the very last moment, he steps up, opens his mouth, and swallows it, and then you see the, the classic Looney Tune g- gag of... You know, his sides expand and, excuse me. And it's it's stuff like that, but it's it's a film that sets up Roger's relationship with Jessica. Eddie Valiant only is in the thing for a 30-second long cameo, but it's a wonderful little character bit. And it ends with Roger returning to the States as a hero, and they're having a parade for him on Hollywood Boulevard, and he has a tearful reunion with his mom, and then... He suddenly pulls away from it. It's like, wait a minute, if you're my mother, who's my father? And the camera whips, pans to the other side of Hollywood Boulevard, and Bugs Bunny is leaning against a tree and turns to the camera, and A.I. Estinka. This is the, the draft that is going back and forth between Disney and Spielberg. And, you know, everyone's reasonably okay with it, and they, they begin developing it. But at the same time, uh, 1989 gives way to 1990, and both Spielberg and Disney are looking at what happened with the uh, the box office for Honey, They Shrunk the Kids. And, and the fact that with Tummy Trouble in front of it, it made over $100 million, I want to say. And in 90s money was considerable. So here we are looking at the summer of 1990. And Disney has its very expensive Dick Tracy with Warren Beatty arriving at theaters in June. And meanwhile, Spielberg is making a thrill comedy. The world's first thrill comedy, Jim. And also the first Hollywood picture, as, you know, I'm doing this Hollywood touchdown thing on Twitter. I was about to ask it. Have you covered this film yet? As no, not part- yet. But I do. I love this film. I think it's great. And the other connection to, from Arachnophobia to the Roger Rabbit shorts is that Frank Marshall directed Arachnophobia mm. and he directed the live action segments of the Roger Rabbit shorts. That's so right. It's That's all coming together, right. Jim, but go ahead. It is. It is. But Disney has a hard choice to make in the summer of 1990. Part of the problem here is that Roger Rabbit is a character that's co-owned by the Walt Disney company and Ambling productions. And so Spielberg had assumed that, okay, so last summer, you put your Roger Rabbit short in front of your, your film. You put it in front of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. This summer, I'd like to put the Roger Rabbit short in front of the movie I'm making for Disney. That, As you mentioned, you know, the first Hollywood Pictures film, Arachnophobia. And here's Jeffrey Katzenberg staring down the barrel of how much money Warren Beatty is spending on Dick Tracy. And it's like, geez, I have to do everything I can to guarantee that this thing is going to be a success. And so he makes the hard choice of Roller Coaster Rabbit. That goes out in front of Dick Tracy, and this totally ticks off Steven Spielberg, who's just like, oh, we're going to play that game. It's like, okay. We are still a year or so out from the startup production on Roger Rabbit Toon Platoon. But there's still another short being prepped that'll go out next summer to keep the character front of mind. And this is called Hair in Your Soup. And it's already in production at Disney MGM Studios. In fact, I remember going 
to the magic of Disney animation and going into the fishbowl area and looking down on the animators who were already working on Roger as a waiter at a snooty French restaurant. And the head waiter character would have been amazing. I mean, big brood of a guy. But they're already animating it. And Spielberg waited till they were about two-thirds done with the short when he announced, you know, I don't like this idea. I think we should go forward with this cartoon. And it was like, it was, it was a power play, but to sort of to get Disney's attention to the effect of, okay, I co-own this character. And from this point forward, I want you to remind you guys of this. So we're going to shut down production of this short. I'm kind of amazed that this stuff hasn't turned up on online yet. There's a lot of work that was done on Hair in Your Soup. So June of 1991, The Rocketeer opens in theaters. And there's a lot of folks at Disney to this day who insist that if Rocketeer had opened up in theaters with hair in your soup in front of it, it would have been a hit. There was that much enthusiasm for Roger Rabbit and these shorts that more people would have come out for the opening weekend and then gone home and talked about that film. And aren't you working on a story about The Rocketeer I am working right on now? a story about The Rocketeer. And there, there is an interesting connection mm-hmm. between The Rocketeer and, and Roger Rabbit. Because I was talking to Danny Bilson, mm-hmm. who was one of the writers of The Rocketeer. And he wrote, speaking of Toon Platoon, he wrote Zone Troopers, which I think is a very, sort of, probably very similar vibe. Did you ever see that movie, Jim, from 85? It's ringing a bell. It's sort of about these World War II soldiers who come across a UFO. And it's very charming and very funny. It's a very clear sort of predecessor to the Rocketeer. But anyway, I was talking to him and he said he said that he actually mm-hmm. pitched a sequel to Roger Rabbit and that they bought this pitch. He says that Rob Minkoff was going to direct and that he and his writing partner, Paul DeMeo, who passed away in 2018, went and visited with Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg on the set of Hook and pitched it. Mm-hmm. So it was right around the Rocketeer time, clearly. He wow. said, we were very popular in that moment, and our version was great. It was going off of Singing in the Rain. It was about an actress who has a horrible voice, so she goes to Toontown mm-hmm. and gets the Wicked Witch to give her a potion to help her for the talkies. That was the basic hook, and the contemporary movie star of the 80s who would have played that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going to do that. Mm-hmm. Everybody approved it. And apparently they had a deal with Larry Gordon, who at the time had a company called mm-hmm. Largo that was owned by JVC. Yes. Okay, you remember yeah, this. Yeah. So he calls mm-hmm. up calls up Bilson and DeMeo and says, do you think you're doing that movie for Katzenberg? You owe me another movie. And Bilson said, nobody does that. Nobody kind of like exerts themselves like mm-hmm. that. But they did. And the movie that mm-hmm. they were going to write for Larry Gordon, Jim, <laughs> was mm-hmm. The Watchmen. Like a really for real early 90s adaptation of the Alan Moore comic book. So they had the Watchmen. They had Rocketeer Mm -hmm. lined up. They were out of the Roger Rabbit now because Larry Gordon exerted this contractual thing to do Watchmen. And then he says, a week later, ABC calls and says, you know the pilot that you thought was dead from last season? We're ordering seven episodes. Mm -hmm. And so he calls everybody and says, you know, we just got to get through these seven episodes. Everybody says no. And Mm -hmm. that show was a show called Human Target starring Rick Springfield, Jim. So because of Human Target with Rick Springfield, 
Bilson and DeMeo did not get to do Roger Rabbit 2 or The Watchmen. <laughs> wow. I can add a little chunk of this because I have the draft of Watchmen when it, it was going to be Terry Gilliam. Yes, directing? this was after that draft. This was after the Sam Ham draft, the draft that you have. Okay. So that, ah, yeah, that was around okay. the same time. Wow. Sometimes the things that impact movies just come at you that blindside you. You know, the things you'd never expect. Like, for example, with the case of, of Roger Rabbit, Toon Platoon. Here it is chugging along Disney's development track, but here's Steven Spielberg. It seems like everybody's made up and made nice because we finally do get a third Roger Rabbit short. We get trail mix up, but that gets sent out into theaters in March of 93. Attached to a, a Disney live action film called A Far Off Place, which a Disney film released in March just doesn't do the business that a Disney film does in summer blockbuster season. So there were, you know, trail mix up doesn't do the business that, that it should. But then in November of 1993, the Spielberg directed Schindler's List arrives in theaters. And Stephen now contacts Disney and goes, Oh, by the way, having just made Schindler's List, I'm having second thoughts about using Nazis as comic villains in our a Roger Rabbit prequel, Toon Platoon. And it's one of these things where it's like, we all agreed on the script years ago. Then we've cleared time in the schedule, and it's like, well, no, I'm, I'm not happy with this idea. So they now have to go regroup. And it's one of these things where Roger Rabbit's Toon Platoon goes out the window, and in its place we get a different prequel. We get a Who Discovered Roger Rabbit. And this is the one that Alan Menken wrote the music for. Yeah, he wrote like seven songs or something. And and a couple of them have come out uh, over the years, right? Yes. Yes. And in fact, uh, you can find this one, uh, folks. Carrie Butler, the the great Broadway performer, actually recorded this one on, on an album she did a few years back. It's called This Only Happens in the Movies and was supposed to be the song that the live-action male lead and the live-action female lead, which, by the way, to date when this project was was initially going to happen, the people that Disney had penciled in for these two roles were Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. That was going to be their big number. Nancy and I had friends who worked at Disney MGM Studio at, at the Magic of Disney Animation, and... One time while we were visiting there, we got taken backstage, and I can't tell you the animator who showed me this, but it was at the actual test that was being done at the time for who discovered Roger Rabbit, because they were looking to lower costs. One of the biggest costs on the original Roger Rabbit was replacing the rods, for example, when the guns that the weasels held, the real guns would move to the air, or the trays that the penguins would carry, or that sort of thing. So for this version, they were going to do all of that CG. I want to say they did two versions of the test. One was with a traditionally animated Roger Rabbit, and it's him bursting into an office and sort of trying to get an agent's attention. And the other one was Roger done in CG, and this is 97, 98 So think back to how Toy Story and A Bug's Life looks with that level of shading and that, that, you know, I mean, it it wasn't great. I mean, it it was promising, but it wasn't great. The gimmick of this script and the gimmick of this version of the movie, they felt like, okay, we've already done the live actors in the cartoon world thing. 
what can we do to make this different? And what Disney had done is they had licensed the rights to actual performers from the 40s and the 50s. So you would have a Hollywood party where Roger Rabbit and Tom Cruise were waiters. They were guys doing whatever job they could to survive in Hollywood. But they'd be serving drinks to the real Fred Astaire or the real Clark Gable. And this sort of came on the back of Forrest Gump. This was very far along. At one point, you know, I remember talking with Eric Goldberg about, yeah, I I was going to be the head of animation on that thing. And I was building a team. And then... Spielberg and Disney had yet another falling out. But as recently as like two, three years ago, Robert Zemeckis was talking about this amazing script for a Roger Rabbit sequel that he'd love to make. But he basically said that these days at Disney, if it doesn't have a princess in it, you don't make it. He told that to me, Jim, at the Welcome to Marwin junket. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, Okay, yeah. so did you get a certain level of frustration off of him from that? or Yes, yes, I did. And I mean, I, you know, he, his relationship with Disney is also equally fraught, you know. But he's doing Pinocchio right now, so maybe there is some future. He, no, that's it exactly. Yeah. If you think about how many subscription streaming service animated features we talked about just at the, the top of today's show. And this is a Disney company that lives on the back of, that's a safe bet. I mean, a a Roger Rabbit sequel at this point, I mean, could you do it without Bob Hoskins? I think Zemeckis actually talked about the fact that, in at least the script that he was talking about, that they were going to get around the Bob Hoskins thing because he was going to be a ghost character. Right. Well, wasn't there another script that they were going to shoot on the unfinished work site of Euro Disneyland? Oh, yes. It was actually an idea that Disney had. They were building Euro Disney, and this would have been 91 or thereabouts, because they were about to open Mickey's Toontown at Disneyland. And the executive was pitching the idea that, why don't we do the ultimate synergy? Why don't we do the origin story for Mickey's Toontown? The sequel picks up its... 53, 54, and Walt Disney reaches out to Eddie Valiant and I have a special job for you. I'm building this thing out in the orange groves of Anaheim and there's some weird crud that's been going on and can you be the head of security for this project? So it's Eddie Valiant out trying to figure out who's trying to sabotage the construction of Disneyland. And this, But the subplot of this thing is that Walt is concerned about how Hollywood is encroaching now on Toontown, that the real world is crowding Toontown out. So he's he's proposed to all the tunes that he's going to relocate them out to this magical kingdom that he's building in Anaheim. And in fact, this is the gag that got cut out of Roller Coaster Rabbit. Supposedly at one moment in Roller Coaster Rabbit, there was supposed to be a point where the, the coaster is climbing up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And then it suddenly encounters a stoplight and it's a crossing. And so Roger and baby Herman are sitting there at the cross, kind of waiting. And then another car zooms through the scene. And it's in this roller coaster car is every Disney character that has ever existed. And it ends with Chernabog 
and the whale that sang at the Met in the final car. So again, you have these two giant characters in the car, and it would, but they're going. Everybody's going by at a million miles an hour, and so maybe it wouldn't have worked in theaters. And in fact, I, as I understand it, that was why it got cut. It was just going to be. This is going to be a nightmare to put on model and. It's just not going to read. But they saved the gag for this this Roger Rabbit idea, that the, the feature idea that at one point there was going to be this amazing animated caravan where everybody leaves Toontown and they drive their cars up the five. But at one point there was going to be a giant aquarium with Willie the Whale from uh, Make My Music in it. But they were all going to drive to Disneyland to their new home behind the scenes. And there was supposedly one moment in the script where you see the walk-around characters in the park out frolicking. And then Eddie's backstage, sort of sitting at a picnic table behind the scenes at Disneyland, and the Mickey character walks up, sits down to the table, takes off its head, and it's Roger inside <laughs> of the suit. So the idea is the cartoon characters are, in fact, you know, they're the ones who are playing the characters in the park. And Eddie's backstage looking at the glories that are Mickey's Toontown, and it's like, you know, he's sitting there with Walt, and it's like, this is so cool, and it's a shame that the public won't ever get to see this. And said, well, it's, eh, maybe one day. That was what was going to make Mickey's Toontown special. The, the day that Walt drew someday, yeah, someday, is here now. That, you know, January 1993, we're throwing open the doors to Mickey's Toontown. That idea fell by the wayside. And the very thing about whatever Zemeckis was talking about two and three years ago about the this script, somebody out there has got to have seen these. I mean, I, I've got that copy of Toon Platoon. I've been chasing a copy of Who Discovered Roger Rabbit. And there's, there's at least two versions of that. One where it's set on Broadway. The idea is that it's because Roger becomes a hit on Broadway uh, in a show. That's when he gets his contract to go to Hollywood and the, the other one really is very much like Singing in the Rain, where it's just two guys who are, you know, one's a, a rabbit and one's a, an actor from New York trying to make their break in in Hollywood. And it's all set in Hollywood. Somebody's got to have these scripts. And it, if anybody wants to share... We are ready. We are ready to receive. Yeah. We are ready. Speaking of it, we, we were just talking about Mr. Cruz, and, which, of course, makes me think of your wonderful Light the Fuse podcast, which... You had quite the show I recently, did. I can't, didn't you? I don't know if I can... I can't talk about it yet, but we will be announcing this week who we got for um, a very big couple oh. of shows in June. This is somebody who we wanted to have since we started the podcast. So it was a huge thrill. And uh, yeah, and this is the 25th anniversary is this week. So we've got Bilga Ibiri, the New York Magazine film critic uh, and editor, talking about the sort of the critical reaction and, um, yeah, a lot of great stuff. But you are definitely going to want to keep an eye on the social media, uh, Light the View social media this week. We've got a lot of cool stuff going on. So get ready. These things are ridiculously entertaining, full of a great Hollywood history, entertainment behind the scenes stories that you've never heard before. And cannot stress enough how entertaining these are. And we got a couple of things here, also on the Jim Hill Podcast Network, that you might want to listen to. We got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We've got, uh, in fact, I'm recording a brand new Marvel Us Disney with Aaron Adams tomorrow. Working on a new uh, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. Tell you what, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be helpful. 
And you were just mentioning social media and the stuff you've got planned for the coming week. Can you you tell folks where they can find you on, on Twitter and the like? Yes, I'm at Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on Twitter and Instagram. Okay. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. Thanks for listening, folks, and Drew and I will be back soon.